Today's episode is sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone, from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 231 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about slow stitching with my guest, Samantha Hoyt. Samantha is the owner and creative director at A Gathering of Stitches a series of small-scale immersive retreats in Maine for quilters and garment sewists. She's been running the slow stitching and slow fashion retreats since 2015. The business began as a makerspace in Portland's East Bayside neighborhood in 2013. Previous to a gathering of stitches, Samantha was a partner with her ex-husband oh, in Rabelais, <laughs> fine books on food and wine, a culinary bookstore also in Portland from 2008 to today. She was raised in New York City and has a number of careers before landing in her craft role, starting with modern dance in her 20s, photography in her 20s and 30s, including a seven-year stint as a photo editor at People Magazine, and arriving in the world of food as a pastry cook before moving to Maine in 20 in 2005. She's been sewing and knitting since childhood and has always liked to throw a good party. So the retreats make her very happy. Samantha <laughs> Hoyt, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to to have the opportunity to talk to you. I have watched a gathering of stitches retreats from a distance um, longingly for many years and just really admired how beautiful they seem to be and what you've put together. So I'm really excited Thank to you. learn more about them. Yeah. So let's kind that. of back up. It sounds like you've had a really um, sort of varied, but always creative <laughs> career. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and I'd love to know a little bit about where you grew up and, um, and what you were like as a kid. Um, always been hands-on definitely uh certainly my earliest memories are of making stuff because when my mother was when I was young my mother um started working pretty early on and my sister and I were left in the care of a series of Danish au pair girls and the Danish pair girls always would crochet or knit and so that's where I learned to do both of those things um, my mother was also a frustrated artist, so there were always artistic, artistic materials around in the house. Um, when I was really young, she had a children's clothing store that sold toys and kids for uh, clothes for kids. So she would bring home interesting toys and interesting craft supplies. So um, I've been very hands-on for a long time, um, and that was encouraged in my household. I also um, 
had, as I, as you mentioned, an early career as a modern dancer. So, um, and that was very quick. Uh, I mean, from a very early age, my mother was pulled aside one day in gym class or something at school and said, your daughter has very good feet. She should be dancing. <laughs> this is a story that I've heard a million times. I bet. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was all about the biology at that stage. I guess my, my anatomy pointed me towards dance, but I think it was probably a hell of a lot more than the, just the anatomy because it was... Um, I was just uh, a fidgety child, perhaps we could say. So um, dance was a good way to express um, some of my deep feelings without uh, causing issues with for you know people around me. I could go to dance class and work it all out and then come home and play with my hands doing knitting or whatever. So my childhood was pretty creative. And I, I feel very lucky that um, my parents sent me to a school in New York City called St. Anne's, which um, has since had quite a reputation for um, turning out creative individuals. There are a whole bunch of artists and fashion people and movie actors and stuff who went to St. Anne's. Um, that was not my experience of it when I was a kid, but it was just a very supportive place. So there was a lot of creativity and I was supported in my creativity and never, nobody ever said to me, oh, you should be a doctor or a banker or a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. So um, I just always assumed that creativity would be part of my existence. And I feel very, very grateful and very appreciative for that start because that definitely launched me into a series of careers. Um, you know, a bit of bouncing around, but that were always it had some creative element to them. And even though I bounced around and I didn't, um, I did a lot of different things. The creativity was always a th thread through all that. And I was, it was always a sort of a, I was looking for my place to land and it took me a while. I'm kind of a late bloomer, but um, I do see all these varied careers that I did try as each piece has some bearing on on the retreats and what I do now. Like the, I learned how to produce photo shoots when I worked at People Magazine, and so producing photo shoots is very much like producing retreats. It's like disparate little elements that you have to bring together to make a new thing. Um, I do all my own marketing, so all the photography is mine, and that came from my history of photography. Um, I have no idea where the party throwing came from. <laughs> Um, probably more from my father than anything who also liked to throw parties, but, um, um, and the food element also, you know, is integrated into the retreats as well, because it's important to me that um, when we all gather, it's not um, that the entire experience is pleasurable. And that includes not having to wash dishes or make dinner or breakfast or lunch. <laughs> um, and, but also eating well. So um, the food at the retreats is very important to me. So I, all of these little elements or little, all of these disparate elements from my life led to this moment where I can make these retreats, which is very gratifying to me. And you said that you went to St. Anne's and that's in New York City. Were you growing up in New York City? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. My mother, my father is a lawyer and my father, it, my mother was um, a small business person. She had the children's clothing store when I was really young. And then she ran a series of um, like uh, tennis clubs. She ran a tennis club and then she had a couple of restaurants. So I definitely had role models um, or my mother was a, a, an entrepreneurial role model. 
you know, she showed me that women could start businesses and, and close businesses and start other businesses because <laughs> it's not easy to start your own business. But um, she was definitely a, a role model for me in that sense. And growing up in New York City was, uh, you know, New York City in the 70s was a completely different place than it is now. Um, and I am, again, still grateful for that experience because I loved being there. I felt, even though New York City was a little rough around the edges in the 70s, it felt like there was so much promise and so much possibility in that um, environment. And I don't know, I guess I integrated a fair amount of that. Um, couldn't I don't think I could live there anymore. It's not really my speed anymore, but I am, I definitely feel in my heart like I'm a New Yorker. Okay, I talk right. too fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, so when you went to college, did you um, sort of intend to do like an art kind of school? No. Major? What did you end up doing in college? <laughs> I went to Vassar and I studied sociology, um, which at the time seemed to sort of encompass as much of my interest in the universe in terms of um, interactions between people and communities and groups um, as as I could find within the structure of a college education. To me, it seemed I mean, I somehow growing up in New York City and being exposed to as much art as I was, um, I was dancing all through high school. Um, and so I had access to amazing dance teachers in New York City. So going to school for that seemed sort of counterintuitive to me like I, I could stay in New York and just study you know go to my own version of college and study a lot of with a lot of important dancers so I figured if I'm gonna go to college which my parents wanted me to do and and I I knew enough to know that that would be useful for me to go to college um I knew I, I figured I should do something I should get an education in something that would allow me to combine my interests in the arts, but wasn't necessarily specifically arts focused. And I, I think I pretty much succeeded. I mean, sociology, it's, it's another you know element of the retreats is how do you make a group cohesive or how does a group interact or what kind of space can you hold for a group? That's what the retreats are. So the sociology definitely does impact in there somehow, how, but I was dancing all through college and the the actually the um, the fall after I graduated, I got I was dancing with a company called Arne, Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane and Company, and we had a performance at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So the November after I graduated college, I was dancing on the professional stage, which felt really good. It was like okay, I can do this. I can do college like my family wanted me to do, and I can still have my artistic career. I felt very happy with myself. Uh, in retrospect, that was kind of my pinnacle <laughs> um, in terms of professional dancing, because um, that's a really hard way to make a living. And not that I was trying to necessarily make it a living, but as a career, I didn't have at that stage in my life enough um, belief in myself to push through the eternal rejection that is auditioning for anything dance movies uh broadway i went to a fair my fair share of auditions and i just i just didn't have that in me which was why i was glad that i had my college education to fall back on so um 
yeah, I'm not sure where, where that yeah, question so, started. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. So, so you, um, so you sort of realized fairly soon after graduation that you weren't going to be a professional dancer as a career. So did you go ahead and, um, and then decide to, to just get a, you know, regular nine to five job at that point? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be way too easy. Um, I spent about three or four years dancing after college and, and most of the time I was waiting tables, like most aspiring um, artists, performing artists in New York city do. I spent a lot of time waiting tables. And at a certain point I became very frustrated because it seemed like I was spending more time waiting tables than I was dancing. Um, and I expressed that frustration to my parents and they were very supportive and they said, well, why don't we try, um, let's send you to a, what do they call those things? Um, an aptitude test, like some sort of like personality aptitude testing program. And they sent me to that. And uh, I came out of that with the recognition that, uh, that I had an aptitude for photography, <laughs> um, which my father was an amateur photographer. There were always cameras in the house. There were always darkroom chemicals in the refrigerator, um, which sometimes was confusing, but um, <laughs> And uh, so photography was familiar to me. And then, um, you know, it seemed a more, a, a better manner in which to overlap cr creativity and commerce. So um, I studied photography at the um, in, what is it, ICP, International Center for Photography in New York City, little nine month program. And I came out of there um, with the skills, I mean, I, the technical skills I already had, but the confidence to put out my shingle as a wedding photographer. So I spent <laughs> a couple of years shooting weddings, which was, uh, you know, also allowed me to combine my sociology background with my technical skill for exposing film, because it was film back then, shows you how long ago it was. Um, and I did that for a few years. And it, it was when I was in the thick of a wedding, I was like in my medium. It was fabulous. I loved it. Like, you know, you're right in there. You're you get to be right in the thick of things, all of the dynamics and the uh, emotion that are going on in that situation. And you're supposed to be there and you're supposed to be taking pictures. It was like this amazing license to to be up close to humanity. And I loved that part of it. The printing a million pictures and making sure that I had a picture of Aunt Sally and Uncle Harry and that everybody was smiling, that part of it didn't turn me on so much. So uh, by that time, I had um, met and married my first husband, who was also a photographer, and he was a he was a journalist. He knew all sorts of photo editors, so he got me a job as a photo editor, which is a very natural step for a lot of photographers they study photography and then the ones who who uh are less interested in the the hustle of being a professional photographer often end up as photo editors which is where i ended up so i i spent i think it was about 15 years um my first job was at forbes magazine worked at New York Magazine. I worked for a teeny bit at Business Week, a little bit at Time, a little bit at Life Magazine. Uh, and then I ended up at People Magazine, which was a fabulous job. I mean, just 
the pinnacle of people doing their their job really, really well. I mean, it was very exciting. Um, I was there for seven years, and um, the mon- the first meeting in the morning at ten, when everybody, all of the editorial staff, would be in the same room, and there'd be this lightning fast, like, okay, who's doing this, and who's got that, and where's so and so, and like, it was just. I felt like I was in the middle of something really cool that was um, being really well executed. And that was really exciting for me. I loved that job until I burned out <laughs> because it was a 24 seven job. Um, you know, if Susie falls down the well. I had to get pictures of Susie falling down the well or Susie's parents looking down the well longingly for their daughter Um and so it, it literally was a 24-7 job as a photo editor. Um, I was working in the news section and, um, you know, there were things happened off hours. You never knew when something was going to happen, when you were going to need to get pictures and send photographers and edit. And um, I was there through 9-11 and that was stressful, very stressful. That, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was also very exciting. And I, I, you know, I still have some really good friends from that situation, sort of like um, being in the trenches, like when you have to produce a magazine every week, um, you learn what you can and can't do, how far you can push yourself, um, how well you work on deadline. And I worked very well on deadline. I I did that. I, I did well at that job. Like I said, until I started to burn out and realized I can't do this forever. Right. Um, your your was... endurance was like <laughs> only to a certain, to a certain step. Yeah. Um, I have yeah. some friends who are still there, but a lot of the people who I was there with aren't necessarily there anymore. So and the world of magazine journalism is really changed. Totally changed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. And I kind of saw that writing on the wall. I mean, when I was, when I left in 2003, um, digital was, yeah beginning to be a thing. And I, I have to say it was not my proudest, proudest moment, but I was like, this digital crap, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm leaving. (laughs) And now I shoot all of my pictures digital, so I should shut up. But, but I loved working with film and I loved the whole process of getting film from somewhere on the other side of the globe to where I needed it. And it was, it was an interesting job. Again, it was a production thing. It was like taking all of these elements and resulting in a story the ability to tell a story and i i loved that that part of it was very um, exciting to me i want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor craftsy and here is a message from craftsy at craftsy we know making whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to adventurous skills we have classes for all maker levels and interests From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com for a special holiday deal. Sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. 
It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. It's an awesome holiday deal. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, back to my conversation with Samantha. And were you still, um, you know, stitching like that, you know, the, the skills you would learn from these au pairs when you were a child, was that still part of your life just as a hobby in the background at all? It, it was um, in varying degrees. When I was dancing, it wasn't. And um, when did it, I started sewing my clothes again, um, or I, yeah, I started sewing my clothes again, probably um just before I started working at People Magazine, I did realize that working as a magazine editor was stressful and I had stress that I was bringing home and I needed to, I needed an outlet for it. Um, I also at that moment was not making as much money as I might have liked to, even though it was a glamorous job, it didn't necessarily pay that well. So I had champagne tastes and a, you know, club sort of budget. So I would uh, sew myself clothes. So yeah, that that's, I was sewing I think the knitting less so. Yeah. Knitting, I was not doing as much in my thirties, but sewing. Yes. Okay. So it was, um, it was there still all along. Yeah. yeah and um, in the background. Yeah. And so it sounds like at some point you kind of shifted over to working in the food yeah. space or the food and books space. So talk <laughs> about that era. Um, so I, um, I had divorced the first husband and met the second husband and the second husband was a rare book dealer. And um, we met in New York, but he had been living in Maine. And so we spent a lot of time going back and forth between New York and Maine and realized that many of the things that we were interested in doing, eating good food, perhaps growing good food, um, farm and uh, food issues, were not necessarily as well served by living in New York City, not to mention the fact that it was expensive to live in New York City. And um, we were spending a lot of money on just paying to keep a roof over our heads. And we felt like we wanted a little more life from life. So that's when I realized that, uh, so we, we thought about leaving New York. Um, we weren't sure where we were going to go. There were options on the table, Southern Vermont, um, Maine. Uh, Hudson Valley. Um, so I started, I decided I needed to retrain because that's what I do. I start over again. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I realized I had been, I don't know, I made brownies for somebody. I don't remember who, but I remember bringing brownies to work. And the look on everybody's face when I gave them sugar was just like, well, that's nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Instead of, of bringing somebody a picture that's not quite the right thing they want. Oh, why isn't this person standing over there? Or why is their shirt blue and it could have been red? I was just giving them chocolate and sugar and they were happy. And I liked that equation. So I said, okay, maybe this is something I should follow up because, you know, my mother had been in the restaurant business when I was right. younger and, you know, it was not un and completely foreign to me. So I went to school for pastry at the, uh, what is it called? The Institute for Culinary Education, ICE, in New York City. And I did a nine-month program there. That is a theme for me, nine-month program. <laughs> <laughs> So I did another nine months of pastry and I came out with a degree that, uh, you know, got me in the door to a couple of places. And so I did some real hard labor um, because that's what pastry is, or actually that's what working in the food industry is. I did a lot of slugging of bringing 40 pound bags of flour up from the basement and then putting it in the bins and measuring it out and making 150 cheesecake at a time. Um and I was too old and too out of shape <laughs> at that point. So, but I I figured this was this is a good way to get me out of New York, and it was. Um, I got the skills, and then the ex and I left New York and moved to Maine. That was two thousand five, and I got a job pretty quickly as in a bakery. I was making pies. Um, I became really. I have a very good uh, pastry touch, which is. <laughs> probably has something to do with the knitting and the sewing over the yeah. years. Like yeah, there's a lot yeah. of tactile analog in my DNA. Um, so I did that for a little while and then realized that, that wasn't really for me. And along the way, the ex and I, Don, he um, was feeling frustrated by working at home. He felt cut off from the universe. And I was complaining about my job um, because it was breaking my back. And we're like, why don't we combine our skills? Portland, Maine has a very happening food scene. Yeah, um, it does. I was up there not too long ago and we had the best food. Yeah, it's it's it is remarkable. It gets written up periodically. It's so um, good. It is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and we were there we were like in it but not of it. And we're like, let's see, let's combine your interest in books and my interest in food and see if we can't make that into a viable business that would you know, add to the food scene in Portland and also give us something we call our own. So that's when Rabelais was born. And that was, that was a really good use of my skills in pastry. Like I understood food. I could talk about food and cookbooks for hours, <laughs> hours and hours, which I did, which is basically what we used to do in the store. People would come in and ask us, okay, well, do you have a really good book on pickling? And I'd be come with me to the preserving section sir, <laughs> and let me show you. <laughs> um, and Don knew about um, rare books. And so our book, our store sold new used and antiquarian books. And we were trying to make a point about bookstores and how they are still a viable model. They're still important to our community. They still have a, deserve a place um, in our communities. We did a lot of outreach. We did a lot of events. We brought authors to town. We did dinners with chefs in town. We had a movie series. There was a lot of um, events in our history at Rabelais. 
and we it was very successful for a while and and how do I segue out of that one it is only it is still a a viable and extant business my ex is um runs it as an antiquarian business and he has the most remarkable and I would say largest and most diverse collection of antiquarian books on food um but so the, cool. it's yeah. very cool. It's very cool. I am ever in awe of his ability and his reach and his not his thirst for knowledge and his curiosity about the subject matter because he has a really cool library. Um, and the book and the store, such as it is, has very amazing inventory. It's ravelebooks.com. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say, I love, um, I love specialty bookstores. You yeah. know, uh, I live in Massachusetts and there's there, there were quite a few of them in Cambridge, yeah, yeah. um, near Harvard. Yep. Um, and you know, there, I, I hope that they, they last cause I think they're, they're really special. So it sounds like you had a lot of events and a lot of, um, outreach there as part of that experience. And I'm yep. imagining that some of that kind of comes into your next job. So let's <laughs> talk a little bit about a gathering of stitches and yeah. your vision for that when it was time to sort of say goodbye to working with the books and, and wanting to do something new. Well, the um, bookstore moved out of a retail location in Portland down to a, um, a loft in a mill in Biddeford, which is 20 minutes away. So we stopped being um, selling as many new books and my role sort of shrank naturally because I was about the new books. Um, and at the same time, we were doing a fair amount of traveling for the antiquarian part of the business. And so I would end up in, in cities that I had never been before and wander around looking for fabric stores because that's what I do when I travel. And I came across the workroom in Toronto. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and beautiful place. Yeah. A beautiful place where she sells beautiful fabric, but she also has sewing machines and she offers workshops. Right. And you can rent the machines by the hour. And I was like, that's a really interesting idea. And then I think I checked in at Gather Here in Cambridge mm -hmm. and I saw a similar model. And then there was a place in Brooklyn called the Textile Art Center where you could rent machines and do that sort of stuff. So all of these ideas started percolating in my head. And then, uh, I don't know, I think I saw a, re a, re a space in Portland which is where the gathering of stitches began. It was a very large space. It was almost 4,000 square feet. And I was like, hmm, maybe I need to jump on this. <laughs> maybe this idea needs to get out of my head and into reality. Um, and that was one of those, th that was place where my background being supported in the arts and um, having an entrepreneurial mother who just jumped into things. I was like, okay, there's no reason why I can't do this. I am going to build a makerspace for textile and fiber artists, and I'm going to fill it with equipment, sewing machines and looms and spinning wheels and dyeing equipment and, and fabulous irons and cutting tables, blah, 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 all of this stuff. And the idea was really, really good. Um, it just did, I don't think it was in the right location. Um, there were not quite enough bodies on the ground in Portland yeah. to support that particular idea. Right. But that's okay. Cause it got me started, got me plugged into the community. I started to recognize um, there were you know, a lot of knit. There are a lot of knitters in Portland, in Maine. Um, I found the fabric people. I found the garment sewers. 
and the quilters. And I tried for a couple of years. I had classes and I had space and people could rent equipment by the hour. And I had enough, I had so much space in that um, studio that I sublet, so to speak, or I had studio space for individual artists and they, they turned out to be the bigger part of that community. Um, but then just un- unfortunately, ultimately it was not sustainable for me because I was just basically acting as a landlord. And that was when I discovered how much of an introvert I actually am and being in that space daily and having um, all that contact with people uh, was hard on me. So I rejiggered again because I'm very good at reinventing myself. Along the way, I had met, I'd been going to Quilt Market where I met people and I went to Quilt Con where I met people. I was like, wait, maybe some of these people I'm meeting out would like to come to Maine. Mm. it's Maine's a nice place to be in the summer yes it is (laughs) um and I made some good friends and I met some interesting people and they responded very positively so the first person I brought to Maine was Amy Butler Uh came with Heather Jones and the two of them that I was exploring the idea of doing off-site events and so that was produced at a retreat center further upstate and it was pretty good. It was the first outing. So, you know, there were some hiccups, but, um, but the idea felt really right to me. The idea of bringing together the expertise or the, you know, the instructor, somebody with some knowledge to share, and then a group of people who were also um, interested in learning, but also interested in communing and connecting with each other. And that finding a a space that supported that and then also allowed people to really settle into it, not have to think about anything else, like to really be able to sew for 24 hours straight if they wanted to, or 12 hours or whatever. Um, That model turned me on. I was like, yes, okay, this is what I want to do. So that was 20, I think that was 2015, 2013. It took me two more years after that before I really found a good location and um, and and a format. And that's when slow stitching came into being. Um, I had uh, Sean Kimber had been uh, in Cambridge for a she was visiting friends and she stopped in at Gather Here and she was there just to hang out and she put on it she. Posted on Instagram. If and I'm going to be at Gather Here. If anybody wants to come, <laughs> say hi. And I was like, "Get in the car, going on a road trip." And I went down and I met her, and we chatted for a while, and we hit it off quite nicely. And I was like, "Would you be interested in coming?" Actually, I think it, I waited another week or two. But when <laughs> when we got back to our respective homes, I said, "Would you ever be interested in coming and teaching in Maine?" And she's like, "Teaching? Yeah, sure." Um, and that our our association, Sean coming to teach um, for slow stitching was really the when a gathering of stitches came into its own with the slow stitching retreat, because that was bigger than the retreats I'd been doing before. It was 30 people with three teachers. I divided it the group into three. So each um, teacher spent a day with a third of the group. So everybody was learning the same material. 
we had this we have this fabulous location the madamic retreat center it's on the top, on the edge of a hill on the edge of a lake there are cabins that are very rustic but modern there's a dining hall that turns out really good basic simple healthy food and then we have these barns to work in and it's just it is basically summer camp for grown-ups for sewing grown-ups and um I feel so, so grateful to all of the other slogging that I did through my other careers that I get to be here now because this tickles all of my funny bones. It makes me really, really happy to run these retreats. Yeah. And so are you, so that you you don't own this site. This is a site that you're, you're renting. They have all these facilities and and you're, you're basically arranging for this event to take place on this site and you run them only in the summer. And how many do you run each summer on average? This year, the last, this year was three, the three years before that, of course, accepting pandemic were two each. Okay. And so and each one's like a, a week or five days. Yeah, they're or a week. Yeah, a week long. Okay, yeah. and and like you said, it's like summer camp. And so, yeah. in some ways, um, do you see it as similar to Squam or no? Yeah, it's not dissimilar. Yeah, it's it is similar to Squam. It's the scale is smaller, but yes, it is very similar to Squam. Um, I mean, in in setup, in the right. you stay in a cabin and you eat meals in a dining hall, and then you you play with fiber the rest of the time. Um, I, I I love Squam, but it was too big for me, and okay. I also didn't like the fact that you you couldn't choose. I mean, that you you chose who you wanted to study with, but you weren't guaranteed that you would get to study with them because there's you know only so many. Um, spaces for each class. So I wanted to make sure that everybody who came to my retreats could take all of the teachers who were teaching. So, you know, I had to scale it down. It's a different, it's a different size. It's a different scale than what Squam does, but it's a similar experience in that it's immersive. It's okay. Yeah. For seven. Yeah. Right. And, and so I'm interested in how you find instructors. I mean, I, it's clear how you found Sean, you, you got excited, <laughs> you got on the, on the road and yep. drove, drove to Cambridge <laughs> to meet her. Um, and, and also you've made connections at other shows yeah. at QuiltCon yeah. and at Quilt Market and, and probably, um, through some instructors, you meet other instructors who, yeah. who they know and things like that. But what are you looking for when you are looking for, I mean, cause I'm, I'm, I'm assuming in the fall and the winter, that's when you're, you know, yep. you're scouting right around now. thinking, okay, <laughs> who yep. can I bring and, and what will they bring? And so, so as the person who's doing the hiring, I think a lot of listeners to this show might be the kind of people who want to get hired. So it's interesting <laughs> to hear from the person doing the hiring, what they're looking for. Um, it is, I will admit upfront, um, a bit ephemeral because, um, it is based on, this idea in my head of what summer camp should be. Um, And it's not that that idea is based on an experience that I had when I was a kid. It's just um, it's, it's evolved in the last, you know, whatever it is, seven years that I've been doing it, but it's a combination of things. It's a um, willingness to be open and available and share uh, your information and your knowledge with a group in a very intimate and very, um, I don't want to say intense because that sounds hard, but it's just very immersive. Like you have to be uh, comfortable and this, you have to be comfortable with being around 30 people for a week. 
And that doesn't, that's not necessarily to say that we're constantly together all the time because everybody has their own cabin and, and you can run away to the lake or you can go sit under a tree and read. It's not that um, we're all on top of each other all the time, but the, I like to break the walls down between student and teacher, so to speak, um, which happens when, when we all end up down at the lake swimming. <laughs> um, but it's a, um, it's a response and a, a pushback against the large um, convention sort of learning. I learn better if I can ask a teacher a bunch of specific pointed questions after I've spent like four hours working on this idea they're trying to teach me. If you've got three hours and there are 25 other people in your class, you may not think of that question that you wanted to ask until you're home. Um, so in addition to having a day with each teacher, the retreat also adds um, or offers two complete what, what I like to call free skate days where Everybody is just around hanging out, sewing, doing whatever they want. Some people end up swimming. Some people end up sewing. Some people end up talking, knitting, whatever. But that's when the, you know, that's when you, uh, I feel that's when you start to integrate the stuff you're learning. It's like you're not in learn mode. You're not in absorption mode. You're in sort of uh, macerating mode. Like it's all in there, but you don't know what you're doing with it until you're like trying to actually do it. And that's when the questions come up. So I like to have teachers who are willing to be available in that sort yeah. of situation. You know what that makes me think about is um, with my children, both with swimming and learning to ride a bike, you know, you take the swimming lessons at summer camp. And then though, it's really during free swim when you learn to swim. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, exactly. I can take you on your, on your bike in the parking lot and run behind you holding onto the seat while you pedal really fast yeah. and all of that. But it's really when we get home and you're yeah. by yourself in the driveway yeah. that you learn to get on the bike and pedal, yep. you know? Yeah. So I feel like that's so true. Just about human nature and, and that time for it to be the independent practice and the thoughtfulness yeah. that just comes from being alone and thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so that part of the teaching element is, is important. Um, the other thing that's important is um, that most of us who do this sort of craft sewing spend our, a lot of time surrounded by people who have no idea what we're doing or yeah. they look at us sort of side eye, like, why don't you just buy your clothes at Walmart or, you know, wh why don't you buy quilts at, at Target? Um, and so the, the experience of being surrounded by 29 or in this case, 35 other people who also have your same obsession is really healthy and very important. I think both emotionally and psychologically and in terms of learning, like to, it's validating to be surrounded by other people who are asking maybe different questions for the, from the questions you're learning, you're asking, or, or come at it from a different angle than you do. But, but their angle offers a piece of intuition that you didn't know. Um, and that, that part of making is, I think, crucial to our well-being, the ability to have agency, to understand that, um, yes, you may be making a bag to carry something, but the actual making of the bag actually provides some sustenance for your soul and your psyche. Like you can make something. It is um, 
it's the pushback against all the digital existence we have, the eyes and nose and the bits and bots that aren't tangible. They're not analog. You can't actually have any interaction with them. Um, so, and I think a lot of people make because it's fun and I, that's great. I love it. Who, whatever your motivation is for making. But I think under that fun is this really deep psychological attachment to our ability as humans to create something. And so that is the thing that I am trying to get at with the retreats um, between the temperament of the teachers, um, the space and the, the um, ease it allows um, the dynamic of the interactions between people. I'm trying to get people to really relax into their making practice and, and explore what it means and how it's valuable to them. So that, you know, that requires a certain type of personality. And I have been very, very lucky. I consider myself very lucky that the teachers that I have brought to teach at a gathering of stitches have all embraced that concept really wholeheartedly and it has been a beautiful thing to be part of for me and have you run into not teachers but participants at at the at the retreats who you know for whatever reason just have trouble getting on board because you know it's interesting like you can you can vet a teacher for that kind Mm -hmm. of sensibility but you can't necessarily vet Mm -hmm. a person who just uh, you know clicks a button and buys a ticket and so I I just imagine I think most people who would sign on to something like this would very easily slip right into the vision that you've just described but there's probably people who, you know, arrive on day one and you just can see like, oh gosh, this is not going to <laughs> be for you. And, and I, I wonder, cause it's a week now, you know, like, ha- have you dealt with some of that? Um, very little, I will say it does happen because it's just, you know, numbers, like you're, you're, you're going to run into some people who don't understand exactly what you're doing. Um, and there's always in the very beginning, we have a, a circle where we all introduce ourselves and share something uh, about ourselves and there's always a couple of people in that at that moment who you can see their resistance right i'm not not doing this this is stupid i'm not gonna and and almost without exception by the end of the week those people are all hugging everybody and we're all in the same place um there, it, that resistance comes from a place of fear, right? Yeah, like, it, well, that's it's just, it, it's, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, you have to be vulnerable. You have to sure. open yourself up to this right. situation. And that's, you know, some people just want to make quilts and I totally get that. There's nothing wrong with that. I do think, um, as you will notice, I am a very verbose person. I, there are a lot of words that come with a gathering of stitches and my descriptions of the retreats are long. <laughs> um, and I, my emails are long. And uh, my Instagram posts are long. So I spend a lot of time talking about what I'm doing and, and what my purpose is and my meaning and what I'm trying to get at. And I think for the most part that that it kind of screen, yeah, it yeah, screens who people aren't interested. <laughs> who are like, oh gosh, this isn't for me and I can yeah, tell right away. I'm yeah. not going to do this. Right. Um, because I've had very few people who haven't yeah. really dove in by the end. Some people, they resist longer, but most people are like, they're thirsty for this. They want to connect. We all want to connect. Connecting is, you know, it's a human thing to want to connect and to connect over something you love. 
like, oh my God, I made a, check out this pair of Persephone pants I made. Oh my God, you did the button fry. How did that work? And then you just get to like explode into conversations that you don't get to have in your daily life. Right. I think a lot of us I'm imagining some people um, make really good friends that they hang on to long after the retreat's over. Yes. Um, and, and again, I, I am eternally grateful for, to the people who come to these retreats, but I have made friends from these and I can, and I see people who are, who have made friends because they, I have a huge rate of return. Like I get the same people come back okay, um, year after year, which is incredibly humbling <laughs> to know that uh, this thing that came out of my head is obviously, you know, striking a chord for other people. Yeah because I get a lot of returners, which is, and is lovely. Yeah, I bet. Is running a retreat business like a, like from the financial perspective, is this, is this a, is this a good business? Like I don't have any idea. So I ask um, out of yeah, total, no, no, out of total uh, lack of understanding, like, can this, can this be like a business that supports you? Um, so uh, full disclosure, no, this business does not support me in and of itself. Um, there are, I mean, it is viable. It, it took, it took a couple of years for it to get in the black, but then it was firmly in the black. And now, um, this year when I added a third retreat, it is making a, a nice profit. It's not making, I'm not getting rich by any means off that but i am in a position having had all of those other careers and having worked my butt off for a long time um and having had a family member leave me some money long time ago which i didn't touch while i was working hard now i'm in a position where between what the retreats give me and where i live which is in an inexpensive part of the world I can survive off of this, but it's not just from the retreats. I don't want anybody to think that. um... Well, thank you for your honesty on that because yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, this is their fantasy business, honestly, to be able to do this. And I think a lot of people would look at you or listen to your story and be like, wow, this is all I've ever wanted to do in my, in my area (laughs) of the world. I've dreamed of this, but it's really a question of like, well, what would it take? And, and I guess that's a question for you. Like if, if you had to make it, really sustain you, like, you know, really turn a a strong profit. It sounds like adding a third retreat was, was one piece. And I wonder whether there's some other piece, maybe a winter one or or one in a warmer area, you know, or something in (laughs) the winter. (laughs) Um, There are, there are two answers to that question. One is yes, definitely to do a winter something would um, change the dynamic. And, you know, if I, if I did double, if I did six retreats a year instead of three, then it would be sustainable. Then I could live off of it for sure. Um, I am making that much enough money so that if I did more of them, it would work. But, um, two things, um, I'm 60 (laughs) and I've worked really hard all my life and I don't want to work that hard right now. So that's my personal choice. And I can do that. So it's fine. The other thing is I live in a part of the world where half the year it's really unpleasant. Oh, it's yeah. Not a good I know. Place to be. <laughs> it's really <laughs> yes. cold. Yeah, it's cold. And and I mean, the idea of being, um, you know, cozied up in a, in a beautiful lodge when it's snowing and you have your sewing machine is very appealing. 
But the problem is what happens if it snows the night before you get there? Yeah, yeah there's or the no night you getting leave. there. Yeah. 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 And it's it's I mean it's tricky. It's difficult. You know? yeah. yeah. So that's why I've held off on doing winter retreats um here, although I have some people who came to my retreat two years ago who have a New Mexico connection and they are trying to get me to come out to New Mexico and do something. And that's still possible. Um I'll just say that's still possible. Okay. I mean, because yeah. I also, I also have, I am like, ideas are not, I, I do not, I am not suffering for ideas. I can <laughs> tell, <laughs> which is awesome. Right. And there's, there's a lot of ways one could go. And so yeah. it's really thinking about what you really want to do yeah. and what you do. So, but, but I, but I'm glad that you were able to to think about like how one could scale this so that it yeah. could become yeah. something. You know, yeah, and if there is somebody out there listening to this who thinks I would love to make that into a living, it is doable. Okay. It is absolutely feasible. It is the the structure and the finances of it can be done in a sustainable way to make yeah. a living. Yes. Yeah. And and it's, it's it seems like there are there are folks doing it. I think about like the makery and we've had mm-hmm. Ali Dijon on the show in the past. Yep. And, and so there are, there are other examples oh, yeah. of, of folks who are, who are doing something similar yep. to this yep. and, and really making it uh, a very full-time sort of, yeah. um, you know, big, not that your work is in full-time, but like even more yeah. events yeah, no, no, and no, things no. like yeah. that. Yeah. Flushing it out more. Yeah. yeah I mean, squam. Out. Yes. And, squam, um, right. and what is that woman out on the West coast? Uh, sure. I'm going to blank on her name. Sorry, but there are a couple of people who are doing it and it is feasible. Yeah. It's a choice that I've made not to make it bigger. Okay. Yeah. That's good yeah. to know. Um, yeah. All right. I, I, I want, before we get to your list of recommendations, uh-huh. um, anything else I didn't ask about that, that would be good to tell people about or to understand about uh, gathering your stitches and, and sort of what, what you're doing with this. Um, I would just go back and say again that um, I actually had a really interesting conversation with Melanie Salick. I was going to say after I was thinking to myself, (laughs) when we get off this recording, I'm going to ask if you know Melanie Fallon. Yes, I do. She's right aligned very well with the mission you described. Very much. And we had a very interesting hour long conversation recently about um, how important making is. And it feels since pandemic and since that last administration um, and our the steaming machine that is capitalism that making is ever more important as a practice for all of us who choose to partake for reasons that are um, deep and wide ranging, including literally your psychology and your psychic health. Um, And that the further, I mean, that, when I started these retreats, it was a business. It was, I'm not, not that it was cold and cut and dry that way, but it was an idea that I wanted to work out. And since it has given me so much in terms of being exposed to people who practice this way, who, who make and who use their making as their psychological well-being and their connection to community and their connection to themselves and agency and tradition and heritage, like all of this stuff, um, has become more important to me, not less important to me. And I find it the way that I have gotten through modern times. And so as long as I can continue to do this and continue to support others in doing these in in this format, I will continue to do it because I find it important, not just for me, but for anybody who comes to the retreats. It's 
it is my mission to help people, you know, sink into their making in a way that supports them emotionally, psychologically, physically, all of that stuff. So. It's a beautiful mission <laughs> and I love it. Um, okay. We're going to get to your recommendation. So the first recommendation okay. you have is a new way to fit pants. It's called oh top down goodness. center out. So what is that? It is taking the Instagram universe by storm. It is a method come up that was first established by um, Ithaca Maven, uh, Ruth Collins, Ruth Collins, yeah. who um, wrote an article that appeared in Threads magazine this past summer, and then was taken on by Stacy Wirt, who is known as the Crooked Hem, and has this um, has created a series of YouTube videos um, that are incredibly valuable as a resource. But it is a way of using the original design come up with by the pattern designer as the beginning of how to make the pants fit you as opposed to starting with your body and saying my body doesn't fit into these pants I'm going to change them you start with the pattern and then you make the pattern you you, god I'm not describing this properly you work within the pattern's stylistic elements to make it fit your body okay yeah it's a little hard to describe Truly, I'm not. I'm sure I'm not the we'll only link one who's to done that. Those, yeah, but we'll yeah. Link to YouTube so people can watch and find out. Anybody who is interested in making pants should watch these videos. Okay. It yeah. Is, it is a game changer. <laughs> All right. So I've never made a pair of pants. So um, go watch the video. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know if my sewing skills are advanced enough, but I but I will take a look. Oh, it, the thing about somebody said about making pants, it's basically is a zip fly and a waistband. It's true. The rest of the sewing of a pair of pants is not really a big deal as long right. as you got your fit right. And this top down, you make one legged toile or one legged muslin and you you can do it by yourself in front of a mirror with pins and pieces of fabric. And the next thing you know, you're making a pair of pants that fit. Wow. Which is great because, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, all right. And you, you wanted to recommend Maria Bowler, who is a creative coach. Coach. She, um, I found her on Instagram, which is a place I spent way too much time. Um, somebody else recommended her to me or she flew by on my feet or something. And she talks about the creative process and how to sit in your own creative process and not fight it um and how it is in the same way that i was talking about the retreats it is good for your psychology and your emotional well-being to sit in your creativity and to that it's yours that it doesn't need to be structured by productivity requirements or or business or commerce um i have found her even just her feed on Instagram to be incredibly empowering and um, soothing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, stop struggling so hard. Your creativity is part of who you are. Sink into it, embrace it. It's a beautiful thing. And yeah. sometimes we just need to hear that, right? Absolutely. That sounds great. I don't follow her right now. So I'm going to go right after this and follow her because she sounds exactly like what I need. So that's great. And then you wanted to recommend because you do come from a a pastry background, a gluten-free baking book. I think it's called Canel and Vanel Bake Simple. Yes. Um, Aran Goyaga is a, uh, she's of Portuguese 
no, sorry, Basque Country Descent, and she has uh, th- three cookbooks. The number of books is less important than the fact that she has finally figured out how to bake gluten-free goods that taste good, that have the right texture, that have the right um, mouthfeel, that have that taste good. Um, I stopped eating gluten a couple of years ago because it just gave me horrible indigestion. I'm not celiac, but it just doesn't doesn't agree with me, and I missed things like good bread and cookies and cake and now i can have them um she uses brown rice flour and uh sorghum flour and uh tapioca flour and potato starch and all of these things that you can find in the supermarket these days it's not unusual weird ingredients there is no xanthan gum which can bind up some people um they are recipe very simple straightforward recipes that make really tasty gluten-free baked goods. That's I am a good convert. <laughs> yeah, that is really good to know. So thank you very much. And, and coming from welcome. you, yeah, coming from you, uh, <laughs> that, you know, it means like you've actually used, uh, you know, it's hard to find yeah. your cookbook. So if you've actually oh, used it, it oh, I trust, yes. uh, I trust your recommendation on that. So oh, I yeah. wholly endorse her books. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Samantha, thank you so much for taking the thank time you, to be Abby. on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great I talking to you. It. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone. From knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.